Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. And that was Bucky Pizzarelli, a very prominent jazz guitarist who died a few weeks ago from the coronavirus. And in that piece, he was playing with Frank Vignola, and that is a very famous uh, composition called Concerto di Arengas. And I'll have some more Bucky Pizzarelli for you at the end of this podcast. So we're going to dive in and do five, five more. Do you know how many five is? Well, it's more than one, and it's more than two. It's even more than three or four. And do you know what I've got five of? Well, I'll tell you. Clinical vignettes, and these are going to be gram positives. So let us dive in here with a clinical vignette case. About two hours after eating warm potato salad at a church picnic, five individuals exhibited abdominal discomfort, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The symptoms resolved after 18 hours. So onset about two hours after ingestion and symptoms resolved after about 18 hours. What organism do you think caused that food poisoning for those five unfortunate individuals. And that's correct, Staphylococcus aureus. So if there's any one bug, and they're all important to know about, but there's any one bug that's gonna be the most relevant in the hospitalized setting anyway to know, and and there are many that are important again, but Staph aureus is the one I see most frequently causing the most havoc in the clinical setting. So no staph aureus, both for the step exam as well as for the practice of any specialty that you go into. So staph aureus is a gram-positive coccus. It comes in grape-like clusters. It's beta-hemolytic, catalase-positive, coagulase-positive. So etiology and epidemiology, it's normal flora in the anterior nares and about about 10 to 30% of people. Um, And its transmission is generally by direct contact. So what are the clinical manifestations? Food poisoning by intoxication. And then cutaneous infections, which include staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, bullous impetigo, folliculitis, furuncles, styes, and carbuncles. Other manifestations include toxic shock syndrome, pneumonia, meningitis, acute endocarditis, osteomyelitis, and abscesses in any organ, as well as septic arthritis. So that is a long list of maladies. And you'll notice one of the ones that's not listed there is cellulitis, even though when you're asked on the wards what causes cellulitis, you'll say strep and staph. Staph is a less common cause of cellulitis. My teaching generally is if there's an abscess associated with it, that's more likely staph. If it's just a garden variety cellulitis, that's much more likely to be strep. 
So lots of things it can cause disease with. The pathogenesis uh, virulence factors include 22 different heat-stable enterotoxins, cytolytic toxins like alpha, beta, delta, gamma, leukocytins, and then there's exfoliative toxins, uh, which are ETA heat-stable stable, and ETB heat-labile. And then, of course, there's toxic shock syndrome toxin, which is a good one to know about. TSST1. And there's also enzymes that can cause disease um, and several structural components, including capsules, protein A, and peptidoglycan, easy for me to say. And the enterotoxins and TSST, um, toxic shock uh, toxin 1, are super antigens. So laboratory diagnosis, staph argan are catalase positive, gram positive cocci that form clusters and they can grow in the presence of 9% normal saline. Staph aureus can be distinguished from other staphylococci by its production of coagulase, its beta hemolysis on blood agar plates and its ability to ferment mannitol. So treatment and pre prevention, the drug of choice for treating methicillin-susceptible or methicillin-sensitive staph aureus is nafcillin. If necessary, alternatives include a first-generation cephalosporin like cefazolin, or in the penicillin-allergic patient, vancomycin. So methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which is a pretty common uh, variety, is resistant to beta-lactam antibiotics, thus you have to use vancomycin, generally speaking. Vancomycin-resistant strains are also emerging. An alternative antibiotic is daptomycin, but here's a little caveat for you, but this antibiotic cannot be used for treating pneumonia because it's inactivated by lung surfactant. Remember that, you can't use daptomycin for staph pneumonia because it's inactivated by lung surfactant. Prevention involves cleaning wounds properly, washing hands, and following good surgical practices. So that is Staph aureus. That is like a super brief summary of something that causes immense suffering in the medical world. Next case. A 47-year-old man complains of tenderness and pain around a peritoneal catheter. The catheter has been placed for dialysis due to chronic renal failure. Blood cultures taken over several days each time reveal gram-positive, catalase-positive, coagulase-negative cocci. The catheter was removed and a course of antibiotics begun. So what does this unfortunate patient with a peritoneal dialysis catheter, i.e. something going through the surface of the skin, have as the etiology? And you guessed it, it's, or maybe you didn't guess it, maybe you just knew it. Staphylococcus epidermidis. This is a gram-positive coccus in grape-like clusters, catalase-positive, coagulase-negative. So remember, staph aureus is coagulase positive, staph epidermidis is coagulase negative. Etiology and epidemiology, staph epidermidis is a component of the normal skin flora and is usually transmitted through surgical placement of valves, catheters, and shunts. Clinical manifestations of staph epidermidis, it causes a variety of opportunistic infections, including endocarditis, 
associated with prosthetic heart valves. So remember that if it's a native heart valve, staph epi would be a very rare pathogen to cause that, but it's a common pathogen with prosthetic heart valves. And bacteremia, bacteremia associated with infections around intravascular shunts and catheters, as in this case that I just presented to you. Pathogenesis, staph epidermidis, produces a slime layer that adheres to shunts and catheters, allows colonization, and protects organisms from immune clearance. So remember, staph epi is slimy. Laboratory diagnosis, it's a gram-positive non-hemolytic coccus. It is sorry, it is catalase positive, coagulase negative, and does not ferment mannitol. Treatment and prevention. Many strains of staph epidermidis are resistant to multiple antibiotics, including beta-lactam antibiotics, making them difficult to treat. Infections are usually treated with vancomycin. Prevention involves removal of intravascular shunts and catheters, good surgical practices, and hand washing. So remember that um, when you're taking the steps that you're going to treat with antibiotics, but you've also got to usually remove the foreign body that's causing the particular infection. So that's staph epi, a very common thing that we see sometimes as um, a falsely positive blood culture. Um, it'll sometimes be staph epi because of the way the needle penetrates the skin as they're taking the blood culture. Next case, a 17-year-old girl is seen by a physician at the health clinic with complaints of painful urination and urgency. A clean catch urine sample is sent to the laboratory for testing. History reveals that the patient is sexually active and has had intercourse within the last several days. Culture results a day later reveal 100,000 colonies per ml of a gram-positive catalase-negative novobiosin-resistant organism. Hmm, what could that be? So that is Staphylococcus saprophyticus, which is a gram-positive coccus in grape-like clusters, gamma-hemolytic, catalase-positive, coagulase-negative, novobiosin-resistant. Staph saprophyticus is a normal flora in the lower urinary tract, and it's a common cause of urinary tract infection sexually active females. But remember this, as you're taking any kind of exam or seeing patients, E. coli is far more common than staph saprophyticus. Staph saprophyticus is non-hemolytic on blood agar plates. Like other staphylococci, it is catalase positive. Novobiosin resistance sets it apart as an individual bug. Uh, that's my addition there. From other coagulase negative staphylococci. Treatment and prevention. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is generally effective in treating urinary tract infections due to this organism. So staph saprophyticus. Okay. <clears throat> a five-year-old boy wakes up complaining of a sore throat and and headache. His mother brings him to the family doctor where examination reveals a fever of 101 degrees Fahrenheit and an erythematous throat. A rapid strep test is performed and results are positive. A throat swab is taken and sent to the lab for culture. The child is started on a course of penicillin. And let me just say, I think they're lacking in some of their physician advisors. No offense to Lang, 
and this publisher, but um, most of us with that story would not also send this for culture to the lab. Uh, if the rapid strep was positive and the patient was this age with a fever and erythematous throat with exudative pharyngitis, etc., you probably wouldn't send it for culture as well. And this is a good point to go review your Centaur criteria for strep throat. And remember, um, the way I remember them is the, I, I use very few of these um, mnemonics, but mine is FACE, F-A-C-E, presence of fever, gets you a point, adenopathy, usually anterior cervical adenopathy, gets you a point, uh, lack of cough, gets you a point, and E is of pharyngitis. So if, that's, if those are present, um, and depending on how many of those, anyway, that's the story. Um, this patient has enough of those where you would not send a culture. So let's talk about this very, very important pathogen. I would say as important as Staph aureus to know about because it causes so much disease in medicine. So strep, this is strep pyogenes. So that's a gram-positive coccus in chains, Lansfield group A, catalase negative, right? because it's, it's not staph. It's beta-hemolytic, bacitracin sensitive, and there are 80 serotypes based on its M protein. Transmission is by respiratory droplets in direct contact. Skin infections occur through cuts and break in the skin. Take note of that. Streptogenes is a huge player in skin and soft tissue infections. Pharyngitis is common in children, so Scarlet fever is characterized by a diffuse rash, fever, and strawberry tongue. So put that away in your memory banks because it's important, if, especially if you go into pediatrics. Scarlet fever is characterized by a diffuse rash, fever, and strawberry tongue. Skin and soft tissue infections include impetigo, erysipelas, and necrotizing fasciitis. One huge, huge one they're missing here is cellulitis. So cellulitis is different than erysipelas in that erysipelas is a more superficial skin infection. Cellulitis is a deeper skin infection, but it's not all the way down to the fascia like necrotizing fasciitis. Remember, impetigo can be caused by staph or strep, and it occurs in the epithelium. Epidermis. So that's superficial. Next comes erysipelas. Next comes cellulitis. And deeper down in the fascia, necrotizing fasciitis. I have an excellent drawing of this that my daughter did that I'd be happy to share with you. Systemic manifestations include streptococcal, toxic shock syndrome, and sepsis. Rheumatic fever and acute glomerular nephritis are post-infection sequelae. So the pathogenesis is that there are virulence factors, which include uh, three erythrogenic superantigen toxins, which are species A, B, and C. That's easy to remember. Enzymes, C5A peptidase, hyaluronidase, streptokinase, DNase, streptolysin S, and streptolysin O. And structural components, which are hyaluronic acid capsule, M-protein, F-protein, M-like proteins. I defy you to remember all that. Rheumatic fever results from M-protein autoantibodies that cross-react with heart muscle. 
I'm going to say that one again because it's important. Rheumatic fever results from N M, as in Mary, protein autoantibodies that cross-react with heart muscle. No offense to anyone named Mary out there. Acute glomerulonephritis results from immune complex deposition. So the laboratory diagnosis streptogenes is catalase negative, beta hemolytic, and sensitive to bacitracin. The rapid strep test is useful for diagnosis of pharyngitis. Negative rapid strep tests are followed by culture, and that's if you have a high enough index of suspicion that it's actually a strep throat and you have a falsely negative um, rapid strep test, which doesn't happen all that much. Anti-streptolysin O antibodies, or ASOs, are useful for documenting prior strep pyogenes infections in patients with rheumatic fever or acute glomerulonephritis. ASO titers generally rise from pharyngeal, but not skin infections. Treatment and prevention. Strep pyogenes has generally remained susceptible to penicillin and other beta-lactams, as well as clindamycin and erythromycin. Deep skin infections may require surgical debridement. Neck cortizing fasciitis requires one or multiple surgical debridements in combination with medical treatment. So theoretically, you can use penicillin to treat this infection. We almost never are bold enough to do that for fear of missing other organisms. Um, but, it, but it is very penicillin-sensitive. Prophylactic antibiotics in individuals with prior rheumatic fever can prevent further heart damage, a whole other topic for another day. So if you were being asked about what to treat strep pyogenes with, for, for strep throat, for sure you would prescribe penicillin. That's our standard go-to drug unless the patient is penicillin allergic, and then you could use clinda or erythromycin. But if somebody comes in with a rip-roaring necrotizing fasciitis or cellulitis or erysipelas, again, while theoretically we could get away with penicillin, we rarely do that. We use something with more broad-spectrum coverage, such as a first or third-generation cephalosporin. Okay, last case, a one-week-old infant showing signs and symptoms of pneumonia and meningitis is brought to the emergency room for evaluation. So we're in that key, how old is the infant question, which is one-week-old. Examination of cerebrospinal fluid by direct antigen latex agglutination is positive for group B streptococcus. Combination antibiotic therapy with PENG and aminoglycoside and an aminoglycoside has begun. Culture results two days later confirm beta-hemolytic, gram-positive, catalase-negative, bacitracin-resistant cocci. All right, so what specific strep are we talking about here? You know it's group B strep. So this is Streptococcus agalactii. So these are gram-positive cocci in chains, Lansfield group B, that's, that's the group B strep, beta-hemolytic, catalase-negative, right, because it's not a, it's not a um, staph, it's a strep, 11 serotypes based on polysaccharide capsule. So strep agalactii colonizes the gastrointestinal and genitourinary tracts and is found in 30% of pregnant women. 
Early onset neonatal disease occurs after transmission to neonates either in utero or at birth. Late onset neonatal disease is transmitted person to person after birth. So the clinical manifestations of strep agalactii is also known as group B strep or GBS. It causes both neonatal and adult disease. I have seen it cause endocarditis in several patients and it is horrible. It's really not the bug to have growing on your valve. Neonatal disease is grouped as either early onset or late onset disease. Early onset disease is seen in infants less than one week old and includes pneumonia, meningitis, and sepsis with high mortality and neurologic sequelae. Late onset disease occurs in infants one week to three months of age and presents as bacteremia and meningitis. And I will tell you, I saw two cases of it on my peds rotation during medical school of group B strep septic joints. Um, both kids had it in their knees and they were less than two months old. So that was the sort of late onset disease of one week to three months they're referring to. Adult disease includes urinary tract infections in pregnant women and bacteremia, pneumonia, and skin joint and soft tissue infections. Please include the valves there, endocarditis as well. And those, that, those can be in immunocompromised individuals, but they're not always immunocompromised. So the pathogenesis is the antiphagocytic polysaccharide capsule is important for colonization. Neonates lack specific antibodies needed for opsonization. Remember opsonization was that thing where the antibodies stick to the foreign substance and then the foreign substance is gobbled up by the macrophages as the antibodies bind to the macrophages. So pathogenesis results from the host inflammatory response. Laboratory diagnosis, culture of blood or CSF will reveal beta-hemolytic catalase-negative bacitracin-resistant gram-positive cocci. Latex agglutination and other antibody-based assays are available for rapid detection of antigen. So treatment and prevention, you treat with penicillin, acephalosporin, or vancomycin. Prevention includes screening pregnant women for vaginal colonization in the third trimester and antibiotic prophylaxis in high-risk pregnancy during labor. So remember, that's an important question for the GYN part of your steps, particularly step two, that you're going to do screening. Risk factors include vaginal colonization, prolonged membrane rupture, and premature birth. Okay, so that's it for today. I'm just going with five, the magic number here, five clinical vignettes for you. So I hope you learned something, at least two things from all of those. And I'm going to finish this off by saying to remind you that these are from the Lang flashcard series of microbiology and infectious diseases. I like these cards. There's a few things that need to be edited, but uh, otherwise they really are pretty good learning uh, mode. And so I'm using these and acknowledging that I'm using these in these podcasts. And then I'm going to finish off here with some more uh, Bucky Pizzarelli. And this is Girl from Ipanema, which he's playing here with his son, son John Pizzarelli, who he played with for more than 20 years as a um, 
as, as a pair. Um, so pretty impressive guy. We'll miss Bucky. He produced some incredible jazz guitar music. Enjoy. Thank you. 